Well, it is, of course, Resurrection Sunday. We had a great time on Thursday evening, um, just breaking the bread together, uh, just being reminded of this incredible sacrifice um, that Jesus was willing to give up his own life to purchase our freedom. But this morning, I'd like to just take a look at probably the greatest, most important question that has ever been asked. If we uh, cast our minds back um, in scripture to Caesarea Philippi, this was in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? It's an incredible question that we all need to answer. The response from the disciples was, they said that some say that they are John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then the big question, Jesus said to the disciples, he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And I think that probably is the greatest, most important question that has ever been asked. And obviously with that, the most important answer that any human being can give is the answer to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? So I thought on this Resurrection Sunday, what we would do is just look at some of these testimonies that we have recorded that speak of the deity of Christ. We'll talk a little bit more in a moment uh, about that whole idea of the deity of Christ himself. But of course, we have the testimony of Jesus himself. I want to explore some of the things that Jesus said. There's the testimony of the disciples. Every one of the disciples went to a gruesome, uh, painful death for simply stating that they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead and that he was the Son of God. Uh, with the exception of John, uh, the apostle, as far as we know from history, every single one of the disciples was martyred. Uh, then there's, of course, the testimony of the Roman centurion. This may not be something you've thought about before, but the Roman centurion was the first Gentile convert that we have recorded in Scripture. And then we have the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, not a lot is said in Scripture about this individual, but the few things are said paint a very interesting picture. Then there's the testimony of the Roman guard at the tomb. And you may think, well, the Roman guard didn't say anything. Well, actually they did. And it's really fascinating to see the testimony that we have of that incredible, well-trained, well-organized group of elite Roman soldiers. And we'll talk about them in a while. And then we have the testimony of Pilate himself, both before the crucifixion and after. And then finally, we'll conclude with the testimony of Moses. And you think, well, obviously spot the difference. Why is Moses in this list? Because all the others were there at the time of the crucifixion. So why do we cast our mind back, say, 1,500 years or so to the time of Moses? And how is it that Moses testified of the deity of Christ and of these things? So that's what we're going to try and look at this morning. Hopefully a bit of a, a fun study in some senses, but also provocative to make us think. Uh, and again, help us to be able to answer that question uh, with absolute certainty. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, let's begin by the testimony of Jesus. A lot of people will tell you they think that Jesus was a good teacher. Um, that he was a good role model and he taught some really wonderful things. And of course, the, uh, to much of the world, that's all they see Jesus as being. I just want to read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm sure some of you will be familiar with this. But C.S. Lewis said the following. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he will be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He's not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. It's from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. I just want you to consider this. Now, this has, again, uh, been done many a times. I think C.S. Lewis did something similar. Certainly Josh McDowell, um, some of you may have heard of, a Christian apologist, um, came up with this particular um, expression. But if you think about the deity of Christ, you know, you've got two options in regard to this. Either that claim that Jesus was God was true or it was false. They are the only options you've got. Now, let's just consider for a second that the claim that Jesus made of himself, that he was God, let's just assume that that was a false claim. Well, once again, we have two options. Either it means that Jesus knew his claims were false or that he didn't know that his claims were false. So Jesus claimed to be God. Either he knew that that was a false claim or he didn't know that it was a false claim and really believed that he was. When in fact, for argument's sake, on this side, we assume if he wasn't, then to claim that he was, and if he wasn't, then you get the picture. Okay. Now, if he knew that his claims were false, it means that he was a liar and a hypocrite because he went around telling people that they should tell the truth. And that means that he was a fool because ultimately he was crucified for professing and stating something that he would have himself known not to be true. So he was foolish. But of course, if he didn't know that the claims he was making were false, in other words, he genuinely believed them, it means he was deluded. And it means he was effectively a lunatic. He was out of his mind. Now, the other option, of course, is that the claims were true. Well, it's very simple. That means he is Lord. He is God. But that then does leave also another two options. And that is that simply you can either accept it or you can reject it. Once again, it comes back to that question that Jesus asked at Caesarea Philippi. Who do men say I am? And ultimately, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Is he God manifested the flesh or was he, your only other options, a fool or a lunatic, someone who was mentally disturbed, deranged? If we look at what we're told in Matthew 17, this is just after that event at Caesarea Philippi. They were starting to travel down towards Jerusalem. Jesus said to the disciples, uh, while they were about to Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the son of man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. And Jesus foretold the fact that he was going to be arrested and betrayed as well. And they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Notice what Jesus said. Now, this is six months or so before they get to Jerusalem. Jesus prophesies the fact that he'll be betrayed, that he's going to be killed. But the incredible statement that Jesus makes is that the third day he'll be raised again from the dead. Now, of course, if you're intent on, on getting killed, there's probably various ways you could do it. You could certainly, in Jesus's time, he could have wound up the Pharisees and the Sadducees or offended Rome, and that have pretty much ensured his death. But you can't do anything about that response to that, the third day to be raised again. Unless you are God, you cannot make that statement. Jesus makes that statement. And not just on this occasion. Repeatedly, Jesus told his disciples that after three days, he will be raised from the dead. Just jump forward a little bit now to the day, the evening before the, the crucifixion. As Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. Jesus said there, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father? Now, that, that's a strange expression to start with because no Jew would call God father. It, it would seem blasphemous to do so. But he says, Jesus says, that I can now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But then he went on and said, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Jesus says that he's got the control, the power to ask God, who he classes and calls his father, to unleash 12 legions of angels to come to his aid. That's the power that Jesus himself is claiming to have. It's an incredible statement if you think about that. 
Jesus, of course, that night in Gethsemane was then arrested. Judas betrayed him, led the high priests and this uh, Roman guard and everyone up to um, this place, uh, Gethsemane, where they arrested Jesus. And they take him back then to uh, Caiaphas's house. There were two high priests effectively serving at the time. There was Annas. Uh, who was the real high priest, and then Caiaphas, who was really the Roman appointee. Um, but they go to Caiaphas's house, and uh, we're told that as they laid hold on Jesus, they led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So they were all getting ready to pass judgment on Jesus. And in verse 60 of Matthew 26, it goes on, At the last came two false witnesses, and they said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now, of course, you and I see that very clearly as a statement of his uh, resurrection, that Jesus was speaking of his body as a temple, um, that if they were destroyed or if it was to be destroyed, that it would be rebuilt, that he would be raised from the dead. So another statement of this incredible um, belief, confidence he had, that he was some in some way able to be raised from the dead. Verse 62 goes on. The high priest arose and said unto him, answerest thou nothing? What is it uh, that which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God. Now, at this point, the high priest is saying that effectively you now have to answer as the high priest. He was saying that by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the son of God. So he puts him on the spot, demands an answer, which according to the Lord, Jesus was now duty bound to give. And of course, Jesus kept the law perfectly. So he does indeed give an answer. And Jesus said unto him, thou hast said. The question was, well, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, yes, I am. Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Just in case you and I missed that, the, the, the Jewish leaders didn't miss it. The high priest at this point rips his garment, which he was not supposed to do. And many other things were done that evening were not supposed to have been done. But nevertheless, there was no mistaking the Jewish response to this statement. They realized that Jesus was claiming to be God manifest in the flesh, that he had the power to sit at God's right hand, that he would come back and judge this earth. That's an incredible statement. Once again, it's, you think of what uh, C.S. Lewis said. These aren't the statements of uh, uh, somebody who is just uh, running a scam here. Clearly, Jesus was either uh, very, very deluded or he was stating these things because he would he knew them to be true. He knew himself to be the son of God. Now, a little bit before this time, actually in the winter uh, before this, to cast you back six months before this, Jesus goes to celebrate the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah, as we know it, in Jerusalem. Uh, and he's standing in Solomon's porch. Uh, and the Jews asked him, saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. So the Jews at this point, again, really cross. They pick up stones to throw at Jesus. And they say, you know, Jesus asked the question, you know, what, what is it you're stoning me for? Uh, for which good work? And they said, no, not for good works, but we're going to stone you for blasphemy. And notice what they say, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. There was no question in the Jewish mind they knew and understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. And this is why they had this real issue with him. If you read John's gospel, uh, even a, a cursory over, overview, you'll realize time and time again that Jesus claims to be God, that the Jews understood that's what he was doing. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to get him out of the way. <clears throat> so Jesus clearly claimed to be the son of God. No question about that. Let's, um, just to consider this for a second, because, of course, he claimed that he was one with God. And I'm not going to give you all the scriptures. I'm sure you can go and dig and find. But Jesus claimed that he was one with God of the same substance, the same nature of God. He claimed that he was the Messiah, the one that had been promised from centuries past. In fact, from Genesis 3.15 onwards, the one that had been foretold that would come, that would crush the head of the serpent. He also claimed that he was the only way to God. In John's gospel, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus makes these bold claims. And of course, he claimed that all judgment had been committed to him as the Son of God. And again, he claimed that he would rise from the dead. This is the testimony of somebody that knew these things to be true. The, the, the argument that Jesus was deluded just doesn't stack up in any way, shape, or form. Now, 
Let's just consider again that question of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, he said unto them, Who say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. We looked at this last week as the reason Jesus played it down at that point. and said, don't publicize it right now. There'll come a time, but not now. Um, but notice Simon Peter's response, that he was Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the understanding of Peter and the disciples. So let's just look at then the testimony of the disciples. Of course, we have that statement uh, there. Um, but in John chapter 20, we read this. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, this is resurrection day, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. It doesn't quite convey, I don't think, in the English, just the joy that just broke out in their hearts at that moment as they realized that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was standing there in their midst. And of course, they were glad when they saw the Lord. But of course, we remember that Thomas wasn't there on that occasion. We're told John 20 verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see his hands uh, in his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his sight. I will not believe. Okay, A lot of people like that today, they want evidence. They want proof. Well, God gives plenty of evidence. He gives plenty of proof. And we read in verse 26 that after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. And said he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas, clearly overwhelmed by this, seeing Jesus there before him in the flesh, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. See, this is one of the, the first statements we have, but there are many through the New Testament where the disciples acknowledge that Jesus Christ is not just their Lord, their Master, but he's also their Saviour, and God. And throughout the New Testament, we have these repeated references. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we read there Dr. Luke giving us this account, uh, speaking of Jesus, to whom also he showed himself alive. This is to the disciples. He showed himself alive after his passion, after he'd gone through his crucifixion and resurrection, by, notice what we're told, many infallible proofs. People want proof. There's plenty of proof. Just what will you do with the proof? Will your heart be willing to accept it? Being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You know, the Bible is full of these evidences, these proofs that for, for the hardest of the, the skeptics and the critics. But ultimately, the disciples clearly understood that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. <clears throat> we read in Acts Chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, as they're looking at a replacement for Judas. Matthias is the one that's eventually chosen. Notice what they say. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, one must be ordained. And notice the criteria for being a disciple, the being a replacement for Judas. It had to be one who was a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, ordinary men do not raise from the dead. They do not get up out of their graves. There is no other religious leader that has ever come back to life or ever even been claimed to have done so. Jesus not only said he would do so, it was witnessed by many people after the resurrection that he had indeed risen. And the criteria for having a replacement for Judas was it had to be somebody that had been there from the start, that had seen all the things that happened and was a witness with the rest of the disciples of the resurrection. In Second Peter one sixteen, Peter makes a point that we've not followed cunningly devised fables. We didn't make this stuff up. When we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice what uh, he says, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In John's gospel, sorry, John's first letter, first John chapter one, verse one, that which we have, uh, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. They were eyewitnesses, which we have looked upon. 
and our hands have handled of the word of life. There was no doubting. The disciples truly believed without any hesitation that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he was God manifest in the flesh. Sir Edward Clark, in response to critics, uh, made this statement. He said, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. What a great statement. But many other um, historians and commentators, when they've looked into this and they've uh, looked for the evidence, have come to exactly the same conclusion that the disciples and the gospel writers were absolutely recording events that had taken place that they could verify. Let's move on to a slightly different uh, situation, though. That's the one of the Roman centurion. If you remember, uh, we're told in Matthew 27. Uh, let me just read the, the build-up to this, verse, picking up verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two. Oh, this is torn in half. This incredibly thick veil that was in the temple at the time that Jesus died on the cross. The, the veil split in two. Notice it from the top to the bottom. Uh, Josephus comments on this and how thick this veil was and how much of a miracle it was. And we're told, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. So this is a serious earthquake that takes place at this point, uh, and rocks literally start splitting uh, all around the area. It occurs at 3, 3 p.m., just as the evening sacrifice would be commencing in the temple. Uh, many priests would have been officiating at that point. If you remember, the Jews, according to the Lord Moses, would offer a sacrifice in the morning and then one in the evening. And so this would be the evening, of course, for the Jews, it finished by 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock becomes the new day. Um, So this will be when they were just getting ready to start. And at 3 p.m. as Jesus dies, many priests would have been there. And this earthquake occurs. And the book of Acts confirms that many priests did indeed come to faith in Jesus as a result of all these things. In fact, the Talmud records an earthquake in Jerusalem about 40 years before the temple was destroyed, which places it right about this time. We're also told in verse 52 that the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. People came back to life. And he came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And of course, it'd be impossible to write and to circulate that if it didn't actually happen. The, the, the gospel writers would immediately be discredited if there wasn't some evidence to verify these statements. Now, we get on to the bit we really want to look at here. So verse 54, now when the centurion... Now, I'm sure you're familiar enough with the Roman structure to know that a centurion typically would look after a band of about 100 men. And this was the centurion, the one who was leading or in charge of the soldiers that were responsible for getting Jesus up to Golgotha, up to Calvary, and then putting him on the cross, crucifying him and standing guard while this was taking place. Of course, these were, by Rome's perception, these were criminals uh, and they were to be executed. So they would stand guard to make sure nobody came to try and uh, um, get them down or to help, assist them or help them in any way. But we're told that when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done. So we're not necessarily told of all the things that they're witnessing, but there were other things. Uh, And bear in mind, the temple wasn't that far away from here. And certainly you'd be able to see it physically now. Again, the the curtain, you probably wouldn't have been able to see that tear from where they were, but the commotion and all the things that were going on, they'd have observed. They feared greatly saying, truly, This was the son of God. Now, notice the the response. The centurion, this hardened Roman soldier, clearly uh, hadn't got to his position just uh, casually, uh, such as it was in Rome. But he makes this declaration. Truly, this was the son of God. 
Now, by this point, remember that it had been supernaturally dark on Earth for three hours. That, that darkness seems to have been a, a worldwide darkness, not just a localised thing, certainly not just the result of an eclipse or anything like that. Far darker, far more uh, terrifying, like the darkness uh, that occurred in Egypt. I just want to think about this centurion for a second. There's nine events that really go to make a believer of this Roman centurion. I just want to just consider these. I think it's really quite uh, insightful as we do. Pilate, of course, had declared Jesus innocent. Now think about that from this centurion's perspective. How many people had this centurion crucified in the past? Bear in mind it was a very popular form of Roman capital punishment at that time. So, to actually take someone out, the the head of the uh, Roman Empire in this region, Pilate, makes his declaration that Jesus is innocent. In fact, it's in Luke's Gospel. We read, Pilate says to the mob that had gathered, I found in him no guilt. And yet this Roman centurion is asked to take this innocent man by Pilate's lips up to Golgotha and crucify him with two criminals either side. I mean, that must have got the, the centurion thinking to start with. Of course, as Pilate hands Jesus over to the centurion, instead of hearing the crimes committed against the state that justify the death sentence, he and his soldiers watch, according to Matthew's account, as Pilate washes his hands in this water in a ceremonial manner and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It must have gotten the centurion's attention. Again, he was a soldier given his life to protect and uphold the law of the land. And, his leader just announced that this criminal he was about to crucify had never broken the law. Well, the second thing was the words of Jesus to the woman as he was on the route to Calvary. The centurion, the soldiers would uh, hear Jesus make the unusual statement to the women weeping at the sight of this Jew that was being put to death by the Romans. And instead of Jesus, uh, or, or sorry, instead of acknowledging their sadness and sympathy, Jesus warns them of their impending danger. Jesus, of course, by this point was beaten beyond recognition. We looked at that on Thursday in our study through Isaiah 53. He was marred uh, beyond that of any man. He didn't look human anymore because of the beatings he'd endured. And on his way to die, he shows compassion for other people who are also going to die. And now that, just think about it from the centurion's perspective. It must have seemed very odd to soldiers who were well-worn by the crying of the condemned for mercy. Again, they'd crucified many people. Many have been in this position. But had they ever seen a condemned man care about anyone else on his way to an excruciating death? These soldiers would be no doubt struck by the fact that Christ showed no concern for himself, but for others. Well, the third thing uh, that we have here, is this refusal of Jesus to drink this anesthetic drink that was offered to him. Now, history records that it was typically the custom of the daughters of Jerusalem, the women in the area, uh, out of compassion for the condemned, to provide wine mixed with myrrh. So it was basically a, a narcotic drink. Um, it was intended to ease the pain of the crucified victim. Um, but Mark informs us when Jesus was offered this, and when he got to Calvary, he didn't take it. Why didn't he take it? Well, because the work that Christ had to do on the cross, he had to do without any of his senses dulled. He didn't want to be in some sort of stupor. Uh, every word that he spoke wanted to be uh, clear um, so it could be trusted and that every final act could be recorded. Well, the fourth thing we see then is that Luke then records that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, as they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the context, again, clearly points to what is often overlooked, that actually Jesus, when he said that, wasn't praying for the Jewish religious leaders, they, they knew what they were doing, but for the soldiers, and praying that God would forgive them, those who were um, putting him on the cross. They didn't understand. It was their duty on this particular day to be carrying out this order they'd been given. And again, what an incredible statement um, that they hear Jesus make. Picture the scene, if you will. You've got the Savior's body was twisting in pain with each blow of the hammer, being jolted as it was raised upon the saddle on the cross, followed by a furthering ha further hammering through his feet. And yet he prayed aloud, Father, forgive them, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Again, just imagine any criminal that these men had ever executed looking at them and offering prayers of forgiveness and jesus keeps praying to the father 
And as we mentioned earlier, you know, the Jews wouldn't call God Father. And the Romans would have known enough about the Jewish customs to know they don't refer to God as Father. And yet the centurion witnesses all these things. You know, he'd listened to Pilate, already declared this man innocent. He'd heard Christ warn this group of women that he was not in danger, but they were. He'd watched as Christ refused to take this narcotic drink to ease his pain. He then heard this man offer forgiveness to his soldiers for what they were doing. You know, by now the centurion really must have been deeply wondering just who is this man? <clears throat> well, the fifth thing is the grace shown to the thief on the cross. On the uh, either side of Jesus, there were two others being crucified. And one of them cries out, Jesus, remember, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Of course, there's no doubt that the centurion already mulled over the meaning of the words on the placard behind Jesus' head, which declared Jesus' only crime was that he was the king of the Jews. And now this soldier, he's one of the condemned men that are on the cross, cry out to Jesus in faith. And in this moment, while they both hang on the cross, asking that Jesus will allow him to enter his kingdom. <clears throat> Surely this man on the center cross will tell the criminal that he'd been misled and it's all a myth. You know, surely he'll say something like, oh, do I look like a king? Do I look like there's a kingdom waiting for me? But instead, the centurion and his soldiers must have been shocked to hear Jesus reply, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, I am the king of the Jews. I am the Messiah. There is a kingdom belonging to me and I will give you entrance. I mean, in the midst of all that Jesus is going through, to make a statement like that must have been really quite telling for this centurion and for those soldiers that were gathered. And of course, after these words, nature in the grip of creator God lends its voice to this scene on Calvary. And this is where we get to the, the sixth one of these nine things. The darkness sweeps in and covers the land. Matthew and Luke tell us that darkness blankets the earth at the sixth hour. And they last until the ninth hour. So it's from midday through to three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and you know, it, it's as if the, the, the sun just gets turned off like a light bulb. Sources outside the Bible indicate that the darkness was actually global. Uh, for example, in a letter from Pilate to Tiberius after these things, he refers to the darkness during this time, this 12 to 3 window. Um, and that T Tiberius had also experienced it, even though Tiberius was in Rome and not in Israel at the time. You know, there's no doubt the soldiers quickly started a fire in order to keep watch and that the torches were lit as this supernatural darkness blotted out the sky for three hours. Now, from this point forward, the tone of everything changes because the rabbis had taught for centuries that the darkening of the sun was a judgment from God. So there's no more mocking or jeering now. Everyone senses that God's hand is somehow involved. The centurion must have noticed the religious leaders now starting to slip away. Luke tells us that after Jesus dies, the crowd that is still at the scene will return to Jerusalem weeping and in deep contrition. You know, there wasn't the laughing, the joking, the pointing, the mocking. That had all long stopped. You know, this was no longer the public spectacle that the Jewish leaders were anticipating. And during these three hours of darkness, Jesus makes more statements. <clears throat> Suddenly, Jesus out of the darkness cries to God. But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm sure the centurion will be a student enough to realize that suddenly Jesus' vocabulary had changed. He no longer called God his father. For the first time in scripture, actually, Jesus doesn't address God as father, but as my God, quoting from Psalm 22, of course. Now, there is no intimate communion at this point. Jesus takes upon himself our transgression. Isaiah 53 reminds us of that. And Jesus knew, knew no sin, but he became sin on our behalf. As Jesus becomes a curse for us, as Jesus is delivered up because of our transgressions, and as Jesus bears our sins in his body on the cross, because of that, he can't speak to God in that relationship that he'd previously known because he's now standing there or hanging there on the cross in our place as sin manifests effectively, taking all the, the iniquity, the transgression, the sin upon himself. And then, of course, we get Jesus' declaration of victory. So after three hours of darkness, Jesus then cries out to Telestai, literally paid in full. Of course, there's the gospel right there in just that one word. Jesus didn't cry out, I am finished, but it is finished. The work is complete. 
And literally, it is finished and always will be finished. That's what the, the in, in import of the, the Greek word to telestai actually means. And the centurion must have thought, what a strange word for a dying man to cry. However, it's not strange, of course, for us as Christians, because it's the cry of the believer's deliverance. It's the shout of their forgiveness. It's the declaration of our eternal justification. <clears throat> and of course, this is the end of the story. It's merely picking up speed at this point, because Luke indicates this final word, as Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And centurion hears Jesus again now, reversing back and calling God Father again. Why did Jesus do it? Because it was finished. It was paid for. It was all complete. In the darkness of the cross, Christ had paid the eternal sacrifice for our sins. And now, no longer abandoned, Christ offers up his spirit to the care of his father. And then the last thing that we have here is the great earthquake. And as Christ bows his head in death, Matthew records that the earth began to shudder and shake so violently that the rocks split apart. Throughout the course of Jewish history, an earthquake was a sign of the presence of God. And this was true even to a Gentile Roman soldier. He'd seen enough by this point. It's no wonder that the centurion stood at the cross and said, truly, this was the son of God. And we read that this centurion then worshipped God. You know, and it all makes sense. You know, the compassion, the dignity, the promise of the kingdom, the communication with God, his father, the darkness, the earthquake, all these things combined. It's no wonder the centurion comes to this conclusion. So this Roman soldier is the first Gentile convert after the death of Christ, a conversion at Calvary. From Luke's account, again, the centurion was not quiet about his conversion either. The text says he began praising God. It implies it's a public thing. You know, the alleluias of the cross came first from the lips of this redeemed centurion. He came to faith beneath a dead Savior's cross. But he believed that this dead man was indeed the king with the coming kingdom, the son of God. What an incredible testimony to who Jesus really was. This centurion could easily have answered that question that Jesus posed at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say I am? Well, he answered it. This man was the son of God. Just very quickly, I just want to look at Joseph of Arimathea because he's another really interesting character that we have in Scripture. Now, some victims of crucifixion would last for days. The longest record, recorded was 13 days. Uh, the shortest record we have was 32 hours, although no doubt some died much sooner than that. Um, but to fulfill, fulfill prophecy, not a bone of Jesus was broken. Uh, when the evening was come, we're told, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus's disciple. Now, these are really interesting things we get. He went to Pilate. On, on this day of all days, Pilate's not had a good day, by the way, at this point. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. This individual who'd been crucified, executed as a Roman prisoner, it's just unheard of that Rome would release that body to just anybody that asked. Well, we do know that Joseph came from Arimathea, as a city in Judea. Um, he was notably wealthy. And he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, is what we're told. He was held in very high regard. In fact, in Mark 15, 43, uh, the title there is given uh, that we have in the Greek. He's an honorable counselor. There's only 14 such men in the history of the nation of Israel that are actually uh, on record as having that title. This was an individual that was very, very highly respected. And yet we find he became a disciple of Jesus. Now, seemingly at first, it was kept quiet because he knew that he would lose his position on the Sanhedrin if it came out. Yeah, but Calvary, again, he, or before Calvary, rather, he kept his feelings about Jesus quiet and probably because of his position. Uh, and yet he is recorded as not consenting to the crucifixion in Luke 23. However, following the events leading up to and of the crucifixion, he publicly steps out of the shadows and now takes a stand because he and Nicodemus, one of the other members of the Sanhedrin, go together and they ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. And again, this was a really audacious act, to say the least. Jesus was, as I said, crucified as a Roman prisoner. You know, what could this rich Jewish council member want with this man's body? Well, the fact that Joseph and Nicodemus are granted an audience on a day like this is staggering. You know, you've got to remember that Pilate had been woken up early this day 
um, by the Jewish leadership bringing Jesus, asking him to try him and put him to death and not wanting to do so, and all the events that have taken place, the earthquake and all those other things. And now Pilate gets another knock on the door. And it's these two men asking for the body of Jesus. They want to anoint the body and bury it properly. Again, the very act would cause them to be excommunicated and lose their office in the Sanhedrin because they were deemed to be effectively traitors. Um, again, they, the, the crime that they leveled against Jesus was that of blasphemy. So anybody siding with Jesus in any way would have been accused of the same. But these two men then take Jesus down, they anoint him, and they put him in Joseph's own expensive family tomb why do i say expensive because it was hewn out of rock this is where we believe the tomb actually is in 1885 uh, the british general uh, general gordon discovered this tomb it's just outside the damascus gate uh and it's a gate that's there from herod's era uh, and it's got this huge trough that runs in front of it where easily a stone uh, or it was designed for a stone to be rolled in front of this door interestingly the tomb was never finished um, there's only one place that is properly carved out inside for a body to be laid. Uh, that's what it looks like today, you know. Um, and again, the first thing that apparently General Gordon did when he went in before letting anyone else in was to take scrapings from the place that was carved uh, for bodies to lay in. And they found that no, there was no evidence of human decomposition there. In other words, there was no corpse that had been, ever been left to decay in this tomb, which is unusual in itself. Uh, the main spot, as I said, is finished, but the other two spots were incomplete. So it means that somebody went to great lengths and expense to have this tomb carved out of solid rock, to have one place readied, um, but never go on to complete the other two places. It was obviously intended for his family and so on to be put in. And then eventually for nobody ever to be actually buried in here for, for the, the duration. Um, Joseph, clearly an interesting character. Um, but his testimony, the fact that he goes to Pilate, the fact that he makes this incredibly audacious play to ask for the body of Jesus, the fact that we're told he was a disciple, there was no doubt in Joseph's mind who Jesus was. Nicodemus also had all had that audience back in John 3 with Jesus, and they again understood that he was the one who'd been promised, the one that Moses had spoken about, the one who was to come to be the Messiah just want to consider the testimony of the Roman guard at the tomb. If you remember on the uh, evening as Jesus is placed into the tomb, as it turns into the next day, it becomes the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread to the Jews. Um, the, it's the following day, what would you and I would be the Friday. The, the Jewish leaders go to Pilate again and say, we've got a problem because this individual said that he was going to rise from the dead after three days. Now that must've made Pilate feel even more uncomfortable. Uh, but as a result, they beg Pilate for a guard to stand guard on the tomb because they say, lest the disciples come and steal the body. And this is what we read in Matthew 27. Now, the next day that followed the day of preparation, by the way, just to make it clear, the preparation day was the 14th. It's when they were allowed to prepare and get everything ready for this festival period. It was a seven day festival period, starting with the day of preparation. Uh, they prepare everything. All the unleavened bread had to be gone and all the food and everything would be ready. So the 15th was a day when nobody could work. And so it was the day, of uh, the day that followed their preparation. Uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Okay, you have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So Pilate consents to this. He says, okay, all right, go on, take a, a guard, take a watch, and you can go and you can secure the tomb and they will stand guard just as you're asking. Pilate, you're getting the impression, impression that Pilate kind of thought that that they were it was a bit of a fool's errand because he says make it as sure as you can in other words if you really think that's going to help it implies that Pilate already by this point was starting to really think about just who Jesus is that question again who do you say I am Pilate's now playing with and thinking about the question and it's, it's very likely that that centurion would have come back and spoken to Pilate already and detailed and said everything that had taken place on Golgotha and no doubt Pilate may have already by this point started to believe in Jesus. Anyway, this guard that is set, this watch, 
was not just a casual group of temple guards. This was a Roman guard. Pilate is the one that sanctions it, approves it, and authorizes it. The Romans, the, the, the Jews could have done it themselves. They wouldn't need to ask Pilate for this. Um, but this is something that Pilate approves. They would have been Roman soldiers. Uh, and typically, these watches that were referred to, they'd be made up of 16 highly trained Roman soldiers. Now, from what we understand, historically, each one would have a spear, a short sword, and a dagger. They'd be fully armed. Each man also had five javelins inside a curved shield. I'm sure, sure many of you have seen the kind of shields that the Romans would have had. They'd have five javelins inside and they would have known how to use them as well. Uh, and their primary weapon, however, interestingly, was a sling. Uh, and they were trained to hit a target 70 feet away. And they used to practice in order to do this. They were, if you like, the special forces of their day. This is the group that are sent to guard the tomb. Now, we are told again, historically, that if a commanding officer came and found just one of those guards asleep, all 16 men in the guard would be killed. Well, that's a pretty good incentive program to make sure you stay awake on the job. Um, so if one of them fell asleep, um, just to make sure it never happened again, the guards would set their tunic on fire. So there was this like in inbuilt safety mechanism within the group, because obviously there was a lot at stake here. In 390 AD, as Rome was beginning to fall apart, uh, the then Caesar commanded Flavius, uh, uh, yeah, commanded Flavius Veratius Ronitus, who was an historian, to search the archives for military and tactical inspiration. Uh, and this is really interesting because I mean, this is something that, as a result of this research and what was done, the American Special Forces, the Navy SEALs, and so on, apparently still read some of this today because the the tactical approach they have to these things is considered to be second to none. Uh, it's the strictest military code that there is. Um, so this is something that's, that's rooted in history. But when they did this research, they found the details of these particular watches or groups of soldiers and what they did and how they were trained and so on and they tried to rekindle uh, this idea later on and as a result um, <clears throat> the roman emperor in 390 ad ended up reconstructing this elite unit now we're told of course that the tomb, the tomb was sealed now that had either been with wax or with clay um, so that there would be no mistaking that this thing was not to be broken or whatever else. And the seal that we placed upon it would, of course, be the Roman seal. Therefore, it was a capital offence to break the seal and open this tomb. Ropes were also being put across the stone and no doubt through the centre of the seal as well, um, so that they actually clearly are in place, that nobody could tamper with or try and open this tomb up. If anyone broke the seal, the punishment was to be crucified upside down. Of course, if they couldn't catch you, they'd come and crucify upside down every man, woman and child in your village. So there was a real incentive not to meddle and not to mess or to play around with these things. So that tomb really was sealed and secured. Now, of course, this is on the, the, um, the Friday that that takes place. We go through the Saturday, which is a regular Sabbath. And then as we get to the Sunday morning, the morning of the resurrection, we read this from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath, it's actually Sabbaths, plural, uh, in the Greek, because there was the high Sabbath, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then there was a regular Saturday Sabbath. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. That's Jesus, of course. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? See, the women realized they knew where Jesus had been buried. The very statement that they knew that the stone had been rolled in place of it shows that they knew where the tomb was. They knew which tomb it was. They'd seen this stone rolled in front of it. So there's, the idea is that they didn't know which tomb and they happened to go to a random tomb and found it empty is nonsense. They knew where it was. They knew which one. But of course, they didn't realize that what had taken place on the day after the crucifixion was that the Jews, the Jewish leadership, had asked for this Roman guard to be placed there. They had no knowledge that the Romans would be there. Otherwise, they might not have even gone in the first place. But nevertheless, they do. And then we're told, and behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers, this is the, the watch, the Roman guard, did shake and become as dead men. These are battle hardened, trained military experts. 
and they absolutely lose it. They shake and become as dead men. They are paralyzed with fear. It's probably the best way we could put that. How do we know this, though? Because we're going to go on to see that the Roman, sorry, that the Jewish leadership pay these soldiers off because their reputation was going to be ruined when it was found that this tomb was empty and somehow this body that they were guarding had somehow been removed from this tomb and somehow got out. It would end their careers or potentially even have them killed, executed. Well, they go to the Jewish leadership and the Jewish leadership secure them. They buy them off. They pay them sums of money to keep this quiet and to spread the rumor that the disciples had stolen the body. Well, if all that is true, which, of course, we understand it to be, how do we know all the things that we've just looked at? How do we know that these Roman guards were there? How do we know that these this angel descended? How do we know that that angel rolled back the, the, the stone from the door? That his countenance was, was like lightning and his raiment was a snow? How do we know that the guards were actually shaking and were paralyzed because of fear? Well, we know it because it's an eyewitness report from these guards themselves. You see, we have an inside story here given to us. In Israel, there were, of course, tax collectors who would stay in their office and do paperwork, and others who would go out and about and collect taxes from the public. Matthew was of the latter group, and they were known as publicans, because that's what they did. They went and collected the taxes from the public. Now, because they collected from the public, as a servant of Rome, you'd always have a Roman soldier standing guard because of course the money that they were collecting was rome's money it was a tax paid to rome so not only would you have a tax collector whose job it was to collect the taxes and keep records but the roman soldiers would stand guard with these tax collectors to ensure that nobody tried to came come and rob them or to take this money which was rightfully rome's of course that roman would have had his shield and his spear to signify the authority of rome do you realize what that means it means that matthew was no doubt on first name terms with these Roman soldiers. Matthew's the only gospel writer to tell us what happened at the tomb. None of the other, other gospel writers do. Why did Matthew tell us? Because Matthew personally knew these soldiers. He knew that uh, this, an angel had come down and rolled the stone away. And again, what had happened in that private discussion with Pilate? And that the soldiers didn't go to Pilate when they fled the tomb, but to the priests. You see, all of this we could only know if those guards had told us. There's no other way we'd know this information. And yet Matthew knows it and records it. And of course, that the priests then pay the soldiers to keep quiet. We actually read in Matthew's account. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city, showed unto the chief priests uh, all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave large sum. Uh, sorry, they gave large money unto the soldiers. Why large money? Because they had to secure them for their retirement. They weren't going to be able to work as soldiers again after this event. Saying, "Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ear, to Pilate's ear, we will persuade him and secure you." So again. They knew that their whole own lives could be in jeopardy because of this situation, but they're secured. And of course, we have this record. Matthew was the one that knew them personally, and Matthew's the one that records it for us. So we have this account. We're told that they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, just imagine this, by the way, in a court of law. You know, a witness in the courtroom saying, Oh, Your Honor, it was the disciples. They came and stole the body. How do you know? Uh, well, uh, well, I was asleep when they came. That's how I know. You see, the argument that the Jews put forward that these soldiers should say just doesn't stack up. And all of this tells us that these disciples must, uh, certainly some, so these, uh, these guards must have had some sort of uh, change of heart or mind regarding this. Now, whether they became believers, whether they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But the fact that they told Matthew, that Matthew has recorded this, gives us the inside story on the fact that these individuals clearly understood that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, the last two things then on our list this morning, the testimony of Pilate himself. We've already said that Pilate had declared Jesus innocent. 
that no doubt the centurion at the cross had gone back and spoken to Pilate about the things he'd seen and his own personal change of heart, his own personal um, transformation as he realized that this was the son of God and goes back, speaks to Pilate. Remember Pilate's wife had had a dream saying, have nothing to do with this man. So Pilate was already on edge and all these things happen. And then the Jews come and say, look, he's going to raise after three or he's been, we've been told that he's going to raise the dead after three days. That must've put Pilate on edge. And he makes that statement that we looked at earlier, make the, the, the grave as sure as you can, implying that, you know, do your best, but it won't be good enough. And then of course the, he hears from, the Jewish leadership, that the body of Jesus has gone. And no doubt he would hear directly from these Roman uh, guards, this watch that were placed at the tomb, that they had witnessed and seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, all of this leads to something very, very interesting. And it's a document called the Acts of Pilate. Uh, now, a man by the name of George Slutter uh, in 1837, or lived 1837 to 1908, um, he actually saw a copy of this document. And apparently the original manuscript is held in the Vatican. Um, it's available online. You can look at it. You can see it and read it. Uh, he claimed or he stated this important testimony of Pontius Pilate recently discovered being his official report to the Emperor Tiberius concerning the crucifixion of Christ. Now, we don't need to worry too much about that statement because we know this document exists because way, way back, around about 200 AD, we have this statement. Uh, this is Justin Martyr in his first apology for the Christians. That's a, a defense, of course, uh, which was presented to the Emperor Antonius Pius in the year AD 138. So only about 100 years after the events, having mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus and some of its attendant circumstances, says, and these things were done so you may know from the, uh, sorry, and that these things were done so you may know from the acts made in the time of Pontius Pilate. That's referring to this document, the Acts of Pilate. This is a document that was apparently sent to Rome to explain all the things that had taken place in Judea. We have another record, uh, Tertullian, in his Apology for Christianity about the year 200, after speaking of our Saviour's crucifixion and resurrection and his appearance to the disciples who were ordained by him to publish the gospel over the world, thus proceeds. Of all these things relating to Christ, Pilate himself, in his conscience, already a Christian, sent an account to Tiberius, then emperor. So we have two independent witnesses that tell us that this document did exist. There is a record of Pilate sending to Tiberius a statement of all that had taken place regarding the trial, the arrest, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Pilate ultimately is removed from office shortly after these things, no doubt on account of the things that he, he declared and proclaimed. Again, this is a report from Pilate to Emperor Caesar concerning the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. And apparently he details what happened regarding the crucifixion, the kind of man that Jesus was, that Jesus had been granted freedom to teach the people, that wealthy people didn't like Jesus on account of his support for the poor. He also details the miraculous events at the tomb of Jesus, that a brilliant light was seen, again, only could have come from the Roman soldiers, that an angelic being appeared, there was an earthquake and the train Roman guards collapsed in terror and they actually saw Jesus risen from the dead, but that they were given money to keep quiet. I mean, these are incredible testimonies of the risen Jesus. And if he's risen from the dead, it means that he is indeed God. So let's conclude the testimony of Moses. What does Moses have to do with this, with these events? Well, quite simply, we looked previously in fulfillment of Gabriel's prophecy that was given to Daniel in chapter 9. Jesus had presented himself as the Messiah of Israel on the very day foretold over 500 years before. If you remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and allowed himself to be worshipped as the Messiah. And it was the only day in his ministry that he allowed it and he intentionally arranges the whole event. The triumphal entry was on the 10th day of the month. Now, that was the day that Moses had been commanded and had recorded in the Torah in the book of Exodus, chapter 12. It was on the 10th day that a lamb, a male lamb without blemish, was to be taken. 
And from that point on the 10th day of the month, the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar, they would take a male lamb, a sacrificial lamb from the fields, typically around Bethlehem. That's where the these sheep were trained and raised and brought up and cared for. Uh, these sheep would be taken and inspected, ready for the Passover sacrifice. So the feast of Passover that Moses records foreshadows Christ's sacrificial death. It was the 14th day of the month that the crucifixion took place. That was the day the Passover celebration took place. Jesus, of course, as we saw on Thursday, we went through some of the details, was able to celebrate both the Passover with his disciples because the Jewish day starts in the evening. It became effectively the 14th in their calendar at six o'clock on the Wednesday evening celebrates the disciple with his disciples of Passover and then is arrested that evening on the Wednesday night and on the Thursday becomes the Passover lamb dying on the cross in fulfillment of what Moses had recorded in Exodus 12 verse 6. Again the lambs had to be killed between there's a 24-hour window for this to happen which is why Jesus could both celebrate and become the Passover. Paul states that Christ is our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. By the way, just a comment about those sheep. Josephus records that over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in Passover celebrations. And these lambs all came from the fields around Bethlehem. The same fields that David once had looked after sheep in this area. It had been estimated that there had been about 144 priests serving at this time, uh, each killing approximately six lambs a minute. For around 10 hours, sorry, for around six hours, this would have gone on. So typically from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., they'd have been offering these lambs in sacrifice. That's the very hours that Jesus himself was on the cross. By the way, as we've talked before, the shepherds around Bethlehem that we speak about at Christmas time were no ordinary shepherds. The reason they were chosen is they had a job to inspect the lambs that were born in their area because they were destined for temple sacrifice. And as this lamb is born, Jesus Christ is born. Not as, He's not born in this uh, stable with the, uh, the oxen and so on all gathered around, as we've seen, uh, and all the innkeeper uh, stuff that's propagated each Christmas time. Uh, as the prophecy from the book of Micah tells us, he was born in this tower, the Tower uh, Migdal Eda, the Tower of the Flock, as it's known. Uh, the base of which was a lambing station. There was a carved out depression in the rock known as the manger. And this is why when the angels are told, or tell the shepherds that you're going to find a lamb wrapped in swaddling bands, that's what they would wrap. They were the, old, they were the priest's old garments. When they were disused, they'd be given to the shepherds and they'd use them to wrap the lambs in so they didn't kick around. And Jesus is wrapped in swaddling bands and laid in the manger. That's the only instructions that the shepherds are given, but they know exactly where to go. Jesus, of course, was born as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The shepherds come to verify and to approve him as the lamb without blemish. Of course, the magi come to anoint him as king, the lion and the lamb. That's why we have the shepherds. That's why we have the magi. It's not some random choice. The shepherds, because Jesus comes the first time as a lamb. The magi, who traveled sometime later, ending up to two years later, the magi come because they anoint Jesus as king. And the next time Jesus returns, he will come as king to establish the throne of David. Of course, then, as Jesus is placed in the ground in the evening, uh, it becomes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Moses had recorded the details of this. It was to be a feast where, of course, no leaven, leaven speaks of sin, no leaven was to be there. And it speaks of Jesus' burial. As Jesus' body was placed in the tomb, it became the 15th by Jewish reckoning. And John 12, 24 records Jesus saying, unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And the feast of first fruits then is the final of these three Jewish celebrations that Moses recorded in advance, all speaking of these events. It speaks of his resurrection. On the 17th, Jesus rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. The feast of first fruits would occur on the on the day following the Sabbath, following the Passover. So you'd, whenever the Passover took place on the 14th, you'd wait for the Saturday Sabbath. The next day, now in this particular year, it happened to fall on the 17th, but it would be the next day. It would always be the first day of the week. The, the produce, the first fruits that had come up out of the ground would be offered to the Lord. 
And of course, on this day, the 17th, Jesus comes up out of the ground. He's brought back to life. And as Paul says, he became the first fruits of all that slept. So some 1500 years before these events, Moses testifies to the deity of Christ and his resurrection in these things. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul there summarizes the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And this is what he says the gospel is, that Christ died. Now, remember, Christ was taken on the 10th day of the month, as the lambs were to be. But he, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? Well, many, but the feast of Passover primarily is the feast that speaks of this spotless lamb being offered in our place. For our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. When was he buried? On the 15th, according to the scriptures. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says the gospel is intertwined with these feasts, intertwined with these scriptures that speak of this death of this sacrificial lamb, the burial, and then the resurrection. All of it speak of what Jesus accomplished. Today, if you go to Jerusalem and you get to go into this tomb, you'll find that there's a door now on the tomb to go in and out. And there's a plaque on the back of the door and it simply says this, he is not here, for he is risen. So the question, of course, if anybody says to you, who is Jesus Christ? Well, he is the risen Lamb of God. He was slain from before the foundation of the world. He is God manifest in the flesh. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you this morning that we can review these things. We can be reminded of these things on this resurrection day, this day that we remember and celebrate the reality that you have risen and that you are God and that, Lord, our trust in you, Lord, will never be shaken. That, Lord, we are to build our lives upon you as upon a solid rock. Father, we thank you for giving us all of these things in your word, that we are in no doubt of the reality and of the truthfulness and the factual basis of all that we believe and hold to. We thank you, Lord, that we are not of all men most miserable because you did indeed rise from the dead. And we thank you, Lord, that that is the foundation of our faith, that our Savior has risen, is the first fruits, and then we will join you for eternity. We just thank you for these things now in Jesus, in the risen Jesus' precious name. Amen.